I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm Olivia Sujic, a writer living in London, and thank you for being wherever you are, and to the LRB Bookshop team for organising this event. I'm so glad this conversation is finally happening, um, mainly because I've been low-key anxious about it ever since I agreed to do it. As those of you on Twitter will know, Lauren has earned a reputation as a fierce critic, um, and as anyone who reads her reviews or indeed her debut novel will know, she does not suffer fools. So I'm honoured to offer myself up as the fool um, in this discussion, hopefully a wise one who will spend about 40 minutes asking Lauren questions before handing over to questions from the audience. If you're not familiar with her work, Lauren Euler's essays and criticism appear regularly in the London Review of Books, the New York Times, the New Yorker, Harper's, Book Forum, and other publications. She currently lives in Ithaca, New York, and before the pandemic hit, divided her time between there and Berlin. Fake Accounts, published today by Fourth Estate, is her debut novel. And for all the grim features of life under lockdown here in the UK, it feels extremely appropriate that this event to mark its launch is happening online. And I'm going to double down on the blurb I already gave for this book by quoting myself, <laughs> which is that it's savage, <laughs> savage, shrewd, destined to go viral. And if the world does end soon, I'll be glad that I read it. As a comedy of manners set between New York and Berlin, it tells the story of an unnamed narrator who discovers that her boyfriend runs a secret social media account used to promote conspiracy theories for his enthusiastic audience. After fleeing New York for, Ber for Berlin, she goes on to devise her own deceptive social experiment, inventing characters to perform for a series of unsuspecting dates. She justifies this act as a purposeful critique of the system and a rebellion against an entire mode of thinking, which was not really thinking at all, just accepting whatever was advertised to you. It's typical of the novel that this sentence sounds both wise and like something a conspiracy theorist would say. But since advertising may distort reality and blurbs may be fake accounts themselves, I think the best way to begin is by asking you to read directly from it, Lauren. So would you just read the section we talked about from the very beginning? Yes, thank, thank you so much, Olivia, and thank you to the LRB for having me. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, as I was saying before, I wish that I could actually be there eating the Guinness cake, but this is, is very good. appropriate. <laughs> okay, so this is the beginning of the book, which means I don't really need to give the plot summary, which has already been uh, elegantly described by Olivia. 
Consensus was the world was ending or would begin to end soon, if not by exponential environmental catastrophe, then by some combination of nuclear war, the American two-party system, patriarchy, white supremacy, gentrification, globalization, data breaches, and social media. People looked sad on the subway, in the bars. Decisions were questioned, opinions rearranged. The same grave epiphany was dragged around everywhere. We were transitioning from an only retrospectively easy past to an inarguably more difficult future. We were, it could no longer be denied, unstoppably bad. Although the death of any hope for humanity was surely decades in the making, the result of many intersecting systems described forbiddingly well, it was only that short period between the election of a new president and his holding up a hand to swear to serve the people's interests that made clear what had happened, that we were too late. I didn't believe all this necessarily, though as the news got worse and more bizarre, I wavered. I've always been drawn to pragmatism, just not exactly a natural at it. As my brain says, calm down, my heart says, also weirdly calmly, a paradoxical comfort can be found in drama. It was and still is my official position, if you were to ask me at a party or something, that the popular turn to fatalism could be attributed to self-aggrandizement and an ignorance of history, history being characterized by the population's quickness to declare apocalypse finally imminent, despite its permanently delayed arrival. We don't want to die, but we also don't want to do anything challenging, such as what living requires, so the volubility with which certain doom was discussed made a tedious kind of sense. The end of the world would let us have our cake and eat it too. We would have no choice but to die, our potential conveniently unrealizable due to our collapse. Until such time, the idea that everything was totally pointless, pointless now was seductive, particularly as a mantra you could take advantage of when it suited you and abandon when life actually started to feel alarming. I myself was soon using it to indulge some of my naughtier impulses. By which I mean that in the first hours of a morning in early January, when the sky was still dark and the government still inevitably hurtling, I decided to snoop through my boyfriend's phone while he was asleep. I never really had the urge to go through another person's things before. After a few disappointing experiences with high school boyfriends' instant message histories, I learned that poking around the byproducts of other people's thoughts usually yielded the mundane, the predictable, and the unattractive. Even with men I respected intellectually, I never found myself caring enough to breach their trust. Before Felix, my boyfriends exuded the wholesome, loving, deep-down reliability of hot dads on television shows, despite being, as far as I knew, not hot, not hot nor dads, nor on television. <laughs> Another way of putting this is that before Felix, I had good taste. But over the year and a half we'd been together, Felix had revealed himself to be completely unrevealing, insisting over and over as I baited and nagged and implored him to tell me his innermost hopes, fears, and childhood-formed biases, either that there was nothing to tell, or, conflictingly, that he told me everything already and it wasn't his fault if I didn't remember. It was humiliating and typical, and per the usual narrative, I assumed he was hiding something, probably other women. Thank you so much. Um, I think we get an immediate sense, and especially when you read it, um, of the narrator's voice um, in just those three paragraphs, um, as well, obviously, as lots of the novel's concerns, like groupthink and, you know, personal responsibility and so on. Of course, we soon learn that her first theory, that Felix is hiding relationships with other women, is... Uh, wrong turns out to be wrong he is he is um he is leaving leading a double life though um not so much as a philanderer but a kind of provocateur um who posts these conspiracy theories um that she doubts that he actually believes and that discovery is obviously what sets in motion the story but it's not conspiracy theories 
of the kind of QAnon variety aren't explicitly like the subject of the book in the way that you might expect from the way we just introed it. And or not, yeah, they obviously have a role. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about how you see conspiracy theories or conspiracy thinking as like playing into, into the novel. Sure, and I, I think it's not unfortunate, but it's hard to describe the novel without putting the conspiracy theories right up front, right? Because that's what yeah. happens at the beginning. But for me at least, and I think in the novel as well, uh, that the details of the conspiracy theory and the sort of actual stories that the conspiracists tell are not the most interesting element, I think. Uh, what's more interesting about them is the structure and how they work and how conspiracists, but also their followers sort of relate to the story and relate to the fiction, not to put too fine a point on it, but but relate to uh, interpret the details of the conspiracy and how they link them to things beyond just their own personal experience. Um, and so, I was really interested in them, in them initially because my boyfriend at the time had written an article about Instagram conspiracy theorists and it was just a sort of like fun article and about it was about how Instagram works and if you don't know um, Instagram is an interesting platform for conspiracy theories because it's really hard to link from it it's much easier now but it's still not it's not like Twitter or Reddit or something where you can just be linking all the time and connect making connections necessarily yeah. it's you're much more able to cre create a narrative that is hard to refute on instagram um and what i was really fascinated by was whether the guys and they were mostly guys but i'm sure there are women too uh who were running these accounts actually believed the conspiracy theories because it just seemed sort of impossible that so many people would particularly the more popular like more controlled um conspiracists and i think what's frustrating about the narratives around them now is that it's it is really hard to determine how true these people think they are and like if they're sort of being willfully deluded about their relationship to the conspiracy theories or if they even want them to if they want them to be true and so they're trying to force them to be true or or how they understand both themselves and and the things that they're saying so that was really why i was interested in them mm. um and I was interested in juxtaposing them with a sort of like normal millennial relationship, not not really millennial, it could be anyone, but a normal, a normal romantic relationship that's not particularly going well and you feel sort of like you don't know the other person and you don't know what's going on in their head. So yeah, I mean, yeah. that that makes total sense. I think that as I read it, I started to basically see conspiracy thinking kind of everywhere and everyone's tendency to want to like make meaning and belong and, you know, be a part of something which had a structure to it and all that kind of stuff. So. I definitely feel like it's seeded throughout, um, even if, yeah, it's not like straight QAnon. Um, and actually, as I read, I guess I started to think of the ways that the critic is almost has conspiracy theorist tendencies in the kind of, you know, well, well we experience everything in the book is through her eyes and she's extremely kind of self-conscious and an extremely online narrator. And I think even if I didn't know your work before I came to this book, I would have kind of immediately thought of the mind of the narrator as having that critic's sort of faculty and she obviously is in this state of kind of constant analysis like you can hear from that bit that Lauren read and the way that she exists sort of at a remove as a result um, and the way that she kind of tries to tease out meaning and determine what's good and what's bad and in fact even the way she says she has good taste before she fell for Felix. But, but for all of her kind of hedging and skewering, um, in a way, she kind of ends up missing the point of her own story or like 
or being uncertain as to what the point is or if there is one or what her part in it is. So there's lots of sort of defensive irony and kind of self-justification that goes on in this sort of tendency to, I guess, like preempt the judgments of the reader. But in all of that, I guess I sort of felt there was this sort of, I guess, moments of humility and kind of vulnerability that she is sort of aware that she has these blind spots and that her own strategy ultimately has its limits. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And I appreciate you noticing it because I think it is, it. I didn't want it to, you know, it's quite hard to be like, oh, there's a little bit of vulnerability, but she's not having a sort of epiphany. She's not, you know, having a tearful lesson and then sort of real making, you know, grand, it was important to me that she not learn any any happy lesson lessons. <laughs> um, also, I saw Naomi was saying that her computer. I was I was worried nobody was seeing this because someone in the chat was saying, "What time will this start?" And I was like, oh. <laughs> distracted by the horror that we've just been going on for 15 minutes and no one had seen it. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think that she has faith in the sort of analytical, critical approach to life that she has, but it is it's truly not leading her anywhere. It's leading her in this sort of elaborate, quite fun and entertaining, not a journey, but she's going all around in circles trying to figure things out. And she really is confident that she can figure things out in this sort of interpretive hermeneutic way. And when she keeps running up against various obstacles, whether they're online or in her personal life, she just turns around and goes to try something else. And it also fails because she's sort of half-assing it in some ways, right? So I think about when, that she, she's trying to Google stalk Felix um, after she's figured out that he is a conspiracy theorist. And she's trying to sort of figure out if he has more of an internet footprint than she had been led to believe. And she looks at like, I don't know, 15 different websites. She's on Reddit, but she's also on like weird 4chan, 8chan, DeviantArt, like any, any website that she can think of basically to try and find like a clue about Felix. And he just stymies her because he doesn't, he just didn't let it happen, right? Um, and I think part of what I was getting at with with this sort of aggressively critical and aggressively interpretive narrator is is this confidence that we all have now that we can figure anything out if we just have the right tools, because it's true. She ends up, not to give too much away, but she ends up getting really fooled by and, and sort of um, almost betrayed by this attitude that she, has and I think too we can all be sort of susceptible to thinking that the most negative interpretation of an event or the most elaborate and sort of grand interpretation of event is is the right one but often it's true that the most banal <laughs> the most banal stupid and like kind of embarrassing interpretation is is more accurate and I think what you just said about the kind of like the idea that we can work anything out is sort of very much symptomatic of the information age. Like the idea that because there is lots of information, you are therefore more wise or knowledgeable, like obviously palpably is in many ways false, but it's sort of more like a, I, I've spoken before about how I think of it like a kind of game of chess where all the information is out there and you can see all the moves that could be made, perfect information, but you could be checkmated anyway just because you didn't take the right path through it. And I wanted to talk about the idea of fake or fakeness related to that because I think, well, I think you and I both agree that the way we spend our time, whether it's online or offline, 
is how we are spending our time. And so even if we're like parodying something or being ironic or performing a version of ourselves online out there or whatever that doesn't correspond to how we really feel or think or act in private, that's not taking place in a vacuum. So it is like really happening and it does say something very real about somebody's character. So I sort of kept noticing how the narrator finds herself doing things that she thinks of as uncharacteristic. So she she's not the kind of person that goes through someone's smartphone, but she does. She's not the kind of white white person who gentrifies in Brooklyn, but she does. And she, you know, she's not the kind of woman to go on the women's march, but she does. And she's not the kind of person to be an expat in Berlin, but she is. And same with, you know, the pub crawl, the tourist pub crawl and the writing of the fragments that she hates and, and so on. And she she does all these things that she kind of deplores when other people do it. So how much did you kind of want the reader to sort of feel like the narrator was kind of giving a, a fake account of herself in that sense? I think there is something I think there's something true to that to that attitude, which is to say, at least from my perspective, I often find myself summarily rejecting things about modern life that I hate and then not having to, to participate in them anyway, but sort of like being in a position where it's not really necessary or, or particularly interesting to refuse. So I think you can interpret it in a number of ways. And, and there's the sort of very political, like uh, Gen X, you should be you should be resisting the, the lifestyle that you reject or dislike. But I think there's also a, just a sort of practical description of what life, what life is like for many people, which is that it's very easy to, it's very easy to sort of hate everything and then my experience a lot when i hate things is is that i want to understand how they came to be right and i my i'm like why why does this exist why is it like this and then the only you know the best the best way to try and figure that out is to experience it for yourself i mean this is detrimental to, to, to me my life and and um my you know emotional state and my mental health a lot of the time but uh i think there is some, yeah method i mean there is something there is something sort of um not vulnerable but like i think wanting to understand things is a, a, an inherently vulnerable position to be in yeah. so i think from that way the narrator it goes back to what you were saying earlier the narrator is is sort of being vulnerable in that way and she's not so you know she's she's not an a conscientious objector she's not a dropout she's not you know off the grid she is fully immersed in this thing that she's critiquing which i think is kind of important if you're going to make a sort of solid critique for you to yeah. really understand yeah, there's um, so many writers who are like, I hate Twitter. Twitter is awful. And they're just like, you know, they've never been on Twitter. And yeah, you, know, you don't, I'm like, you don't even know how bad it is. You yeah. don't even realize. <laughs> yeah, so I, totally. I was saying, I was saying before in the, in our, our green room chat that I, I, you know, obviously I appreciate all my reviews, but I, I bristle a little bit when people call my novel a satire because I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is happening right now on your computer. <laughs> this is totally <laughs> a realistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm telling yeah, you, is... I'm screaming. <laughs> Pay attention to the internet. <laughs> oh, well, let's hope so. I mean, I, I, what you just said, um, actually, as well, in terms of vulnerability, um, I think at the event you did the other evening with Emily Gould, you mentioned that um, the working title for this was, fate, uh, was for attention. 
Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is a, was a, is a good one. And, and so obviously she pays a lot of attention to these things that she loathes um, and as a critic and is desperate for attention herself, um, you know, in terms of like exposure online and and through her work as a writer, like it gives her that kind of dopamine hit that everyone listening to this, I'm sure, can relate to. But for all of her many followers and, and all the attention that she gets, she doesn't feel, for want of a better word, sort of seen um, in the sense of being understood, um, even if only to be kind of called out, I guess, which is sort of sad. And so I'm thinking of that section when she goes for dinner with her friend, Emily, in, is it Emily? No, Jane in oh, New York. Jane, yeah. Sorry, I'm thinking of Emily Gould. Um, and she and she has this conversation. They used to be really intimate, but now Jane can't really like interpret her sadness very well and ends up sort of saying all these like pat, slightly rote things like, oh, it sounds like you should see a therapist or whatever. And and I guess it seems to be this sort of feeling of alienation that isn't despite the attention, but almost like because of it, because it's this like misinterpretation of her that kind of drives her to go to Berlin, where at least she's sort of supposed to feel alienated because there's this language barrier, she doesn't know anyone, everything's foreign and, and so on. And, and um, she's on in different time zones and none of her like tweets are kind of met with much response from back home. So I wondered if you could just say a little bit about that, like, you know, it being less jarring to feel alienated in Berlin or like, and so on. And is that alienation, I guess, is that why she's writing the book? Do you think, or is there another reason? I mean, I think that, sure, we can say that, yes, that's why she is writing the book. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think that she is, you know, it's a, it's a reciprocal exchange, right? The people that she's around are sort of giving her these sort of like rote cliche therapy, like I'm sure that was really hard for you kind of worksheet style um, responses when she tells them that, um, you know, this, her, she tells them something about Felix. We can say Felix dies. This is in many of their reviews. He dies before she can pick up with him. Um, and so she is Damn. having this, <laughs> she's having this, it's just hard to talk about it. And also I give yeah. away things when I re review, I think it's, I think particularly the ends of books are very important. So I always try to talk about them when I review them, particularly for the LRB. Anyway, um, so it's only fair that I spoil my own book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she wants to break up with Felix and sort of like best him by saying she found out that he's a conspiracy theorist, but before she can do that, he dies in a bicycle accident. So she's bereft and she can't really talk to any of her friends about it because she doesn't want to tell them that he had been secretly a conspiracy theorist. And she also sort of wants to say, oh, I was going to break up with him anyway, but she doesn't want to seem callous because he's died. And so people have this sort of very sentimental relationship to him because he's just died. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's terrible for you, but I don't want to talk to you about it. I'm going to buy you a cocktail and then I'm going to go back to my own life. So she doesn't like that. But at the same time, she's not giving them the whole story. So they can't actually have a quote unquote real conversation with her because right. yeah. no party, no party is going into this with a genuine, um, you know, with, with a genuine motive. So yes, but she is, I think, alienated because a lot of things <laughs> of how she lives her life, which is very online. And she's having all these sort of tenuous interactions with people that she doesn't really know. And 
having to constantly interpret what these things mean. Um, mm. And now it's sort of come into her real life where she's had, she's been in a relationship for two years with a man that she doesn't really know. And she has to like scour his social media to find any kind of clue to, to understanding what he's really like. Right. And actually this would be a good point, I think, to read that bit about Emily, the spy. Harry's oh, Harry. why am I so em obsessed with em Emily? <laughs> Emily has totally colonized the book. It's, it's um, Emily. So this whole book is about somebody called Emily. No, the, yeah. the, bit, um, <laughs> the bit about Harriet the Spy, because it kind of, I think it was the bit when I was reading it where I, where I got, I think, the, m more of a sense of why she is the way she is and like where mm -hmm. some of this stuff comes from that she can't express. So do you want to just read that bit for us? Yes, and I think it works as a, as a sort of parable for social media, I hope at least, okay. When I was seven years old, my mother took me to see the film adaptation of Louise Fitzhugh's 1964 ch classic children's novel, Harriet the Spy. The movie starred Michelle Trachtenberg as a sixth grader who keeps a notebook of spy observations, which include field notes on missions, breaking and entering, as well as mean commentary on her friends and family. The notebook is a classic black and white marbled composition book with the word private taped over the front. This mandate is ignored by the rich popular bully Marion Hawthorne, who finds the notebook while Harriet and her friends, Janie and Sport, are playing in a park. Marion, in a precocious houndstooth blazer, gathers the class around and begins to read aloud to the tiny Michelle Trachtenberg's freckled distress. The only thing more pathetic than being Marion Hawthorne, Marion begins in her taunting nasal sing-song, is wanting to be Marion Hawthorne. Janie and Sport try to stop her, but their entreaties only spur Marion to flip the pages detailing their own shortcomings. Janie really creeps me out. I wonder if she'll grow up to be a total nutcase. Sport is so poor he can't even afford food. Why can't his father get a real job? If I was the boy with the purple socks, I'd hang myself, etc. Harriet's friends abandon her, joining a collective spy catcher club to prevent her from carrying out her missions. Her parents confiscate her notebook after her grades drop. Eventually, there's a Carrie-esque scene involving blue paint. Harriet begins to enact cruel, specific revenge made possible by her sleuthing campaigns on all the kids individually, deepening their animosity toward her. It sounds dark, and it is. The resolution happy ending only arrives after Harriet's former nanny, Rosie O'Donnell, advises her to apologize to everyone and to lie about how she didn't really mean the cruel things she had written. When I saw this movie as a child, I didn't take away the lessons intended, which were that lying or omitting the truth is sometimes necessary to maintain friendships, and that if you're going to keep a private notebook, you should probably be careful about where you leave it. Instead, I began to fantasize about undergoing Harriet's dramatic ordeal myself. The idea that everyone I knew might care about my private thoughts was appealing, as was the possibility of no people knowing my negative internal monologue without my having to tell them. When the class became obsessed with making Harriet miserable, all I could see was that they were obsessed. I asked my mother to get me a black and white composition notebook and began to write down all the mean stuff I could think of. My report focused specifically on one friend, Kayla, who lived down the street. I wrote that she had stringy hair and that I never had fun when my mom made me spend the night in her house. We had recently begun painting our nails ourselves, and I wrote that I found it disturbing that she painted her toenails with horizontal strokes instead of vertical ones. A day later, I went over to Kayla's house with my notebook ostentatiously, ostentatiously guarded at my chest. This is my private notebook, I told her. I got it yesterday. You can't look at it. She asked what I wrote in it. None of your business, I said. 
After we spent some time on her swing set, I left the notebook in the yard and went home. Soon after, my mother received a call from Kayla's mother saying that Kayla had read my abandoned private notebook and was crying. I can't remember if I was punished. It's possible I wasn't. But I do remember panicking as soon as I realized that what I'd done would have consequences beyond being sent to my room. I had seeded my thoughts in exchange for becoming the focus of attention, and now I had less control over who I was to other people. Kayla and her mother would forever see me a certain way, as a careless little bitch who didn't know what she was talking about. But a careless little bitch who didn't know what she was talking about is not as bad as what I actually was. Someone who would rather other people think of her as a careless little bitch who didn't know what she was talking about than not think of her at all. Oh, I find that so devastating. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so I know. Bad. I know, it's very um, sad. It makes me want to go back to that film, but equally not sure if I can take it right now. I'm very, I mean, I can basically only cope with like Attenborough documentaries at the moment anyway. Yes. Yeah. It's so But that's sad. about the beauty of, beauty of life where this is about the lack of beauty in life, I, I think. Yeah, um, although now they're all becoming quite doomy about, you know, imminent apocalypse as well. So they're not really much of a yeah. escape anymore. Um, but this, so this section um, is obviously from the kind of parody of the fragments bit of the novel. And there's lots of times you play with form and structure and so on in ways that emphasize the book's own construction. Uh, so there's obviously signposting for like beginning, backstory, middle, something happens, middle, nothing happens, climax, end, is that right? Yeah. And there's all this like sex scene kind of thing, um, yeah. which I really, I really, really enjoyed. Um, and there are obviously these kind of autofiction elements, like, you know, your, your profile picture, anticipating someone might Google you, already know what your, you know, profile picture is and so on is the same as the narrators. Um, and then there are these kind of other like postmodern elements, but then there are also kind of Jane Austen elements and, you know, there's the kind of like Sophie Carl uh, experiment with the dates, you know, where there are all these kind of different textures, I guess. And I just wondered how you arrived at that interplay, like if you knew you wanted to involve them all or if they just came naturally or kind of what the is it sort of to make a point? So on. Um, I think it all sort of came natural. I didn't I didn't I didn't really plan much of the book. I planned the plot. Uh, I had the whole plot figured out, not the whole plot. There's two twists. So I had the two twists figured out. Uh, and then I sort of wrote straight through and I think, or I hope that there's this sort of like free liberated element to all the structural formal experimentation in the book because, and I, and I think that that just, you know, practically comes from the fact that I didn't plan it and I just sort of came up with it while I was writing and, and just, you know, thought about it, thought it was a good idea. So I kept it. Um, and I think it I think it works in part because it's so responsive. So she's so analytical and she's so she she takes an input and she, you know, examines it from all sides. So you you could say that it's not very propulsive, but I think there's like a drive to, to drive to understand things that that this experimental stuff comes from. And mm. so I think that it keeps you very surprised because I was surprised. I think Sadie Smith says something to this effect in one of her craft essays where she's talking about how she doesn't have she has no idea what she does she's going to do yeah. before she writes the book um and is that the one where is that the one where she talks about building the floors of the house before like stairs that lead to nowhere kind of thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I think it, it can't go wrong but um I hope that, <laughs> I just hope that it works 
uh, I can't remember the actual, the, what the question was. Well, here, it was sort of about how, how yeah. conscious it was that you wanted to bring in all of these different kind of, this interplay of different elements. And I, and I think it, it does really seem like that, that it's almost like a kind of, it almost has that scientific theoretical approach. Like I'll try this method, I'll try that method. Yeah. And like that kind of prismatic way of looking at the same question to get kind of closer a, to the truth. Yeah, and I think it is a little bit desperate too. Like there is this sort of like, she needs something to work even though she doesn't think any of these things is gonna work out. And and when the fragments come up, so she's, she's moved to Berlin and she's walking around, she has a babysitting job and she pushes babies in a stroller. She's listening to a podcast and someone is describing how they wrote their own novel in fragments. She's like, I hate that. Like, I hate this. It's so trendy. I hate it. Then, <laughs> then she's like, well, maybe I'll try it and I'll see if it makes sense. And she's, you know, she's clearly not trying it in particularly good faith, but I do think she's like searching for some kind of organizing principle in her life. And so I tried to, to reflect that in the structure, the various structural things yeah. as well. That definitely came across, I think, that idea that like forms that kind of contain and give you that sense of like, I know what I'm supposed to do now. It's to cut the sentence off and begin a new section. Or I guess that does that uh, was that part of why like the kind of health insurance forms and all those kind of like forms of filling in information structuring type things are in there too. Yeah, I think because I think it's other. You know, you need. I think you need in life arbitrary organizing principles and you certainly have to like filling out a form and having a due date for a form can lend your life much greater form than just the actual piece of paper that you're filling out um and I think for her particularly she's moved to Berlin for kind of no reason and she does she's searching for some sort of like bigger it's something that's going to lend her life significance or like make sense of all this stuff. So she's moved to Berlin and then she gets there and she's like, I don't have a reason to be here. And she's sort of surprised that she can just move to another country. And it's pretty easy for her, as we've said, like a, a, an American white woman to, to get a visa and just stay for however long she wants. And the health insurance form that she sort of melodramatically deals with trying to figure out for much of that section uh, is this like, is her like last connection to the real world or whatever, or to some sort of like stable reality that she wants to be a part of. Yeah, and I guess there's something, there's something kind of reassuring about those constraints because I mean, I guess it's a bit like the tweet, you know, like having that whatever limit to your characters, but also like the format of it, like all of the, it's like, really reassuring to know how to speak in that tone you know that like there's like right. a meme that you can play with like it's sort of it's a way to be creative but obviously it's also a way to feel like you kind of belong in, in within a structure so I will very shortly look at I can see that there are 48 comments that I haven't looked at because I'm looking at my phone but I will at some point look at them but I just wanted to ask you one more question before we sort of turn it over and it's about criticism because obviously it's relevant, but also, you know, this is an LRB event and you write a lot for the LRB. Um, and I just wanted to talk about, um, well, we can talk about lots of things, but one of my questions was uh, 
how you've said that the critic has no power. And I think somewhere you said that the critic is like the uh, a protester at the march holding a sign, which I really liked <laughs> as an idea. Um, even if it's a, I was thinking of that guy who just holds the signs that say like random stuff <laughs> that people impose. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> but um, I and I think it and I think it's probably very true for a lot of critics. Um, maybe not you now. I think uh, like a lot of people would definitely listen to what you have to say. But um, and obviously lots of outlets for criticism are shrinking, and and you know it's it's not like they have the money of the big corporate publishing houses behind them and so on. Um, but I just wondered if you thought you might ever change your mind about that, or or like do you think that the power dynamic might shift because it does feel like in other ways the the onlineness of criticism like not just even if it goes viral but even just like amazon reviews and goodread reviews being the first thing that comes up on google when someone searches a book and the fact that they're there forever and they're normally obviously free and accessible and short you know just the whatever that kind of rating system whereas obviously a book is analog and expensive and so on and so forth do you think that that power dynamic is sort of like how it always will be? Or do you think that there's sort of room for it to tip I, in the face? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would want to have, I, the reason why I have such fun writing my reviews is that I am confident that they, if I write a positive review, maybe, you know, maybe 10 or 15 people will buy the book, uh, which is great, but it's not um, going to, change any any material circumstances of anyone in the world right and and if I write a negative review I suspect that it also will pro probably shift to numbers like 10 or 15 you know 10 or 15 books right like I don't I don't know that or maybe they'll sell way more because I mean maybe maybe <laughs> I know exactly I mean maybe the, what's interesting about being on the other side is is that I understand which which kinds of reviews we want and like which ones matter and which ones don't and they're the ones that the ones that we want are not the kind that I write which are highly descriptive and you can't get a real blurbable um, <laughs> sentence out of it so so there are super, a couple of super interesting essays about my book that basically you have to really read between the lines to determine if the person has liked it or not but I think what I wanted to say is that I think it's super uh, I think it's super important to say that the people on Amazon and the people on Goodreads are like not critics, right? Oh, I, like <laughs> they do. I don't want to sound think, like a snob, but <laughs> they're, I mean, not all of them. I, if I if I wrote an Amazon review, right, or I think Roxane Gay like writes quite a lot of Goodreads reviews, and I think her her Goodreads reviews are quite power, powerful. Uh, and where I if I started being Lauren Euler on Amazon, like maybe that would have some power, but I think it's really sad that um, I am asked <laughs> as an author, as I'm sure you have, to email all of my friends and family and sort of beg them to give a five-star review of my book. Because I don't want to drive my friends and family to Amazon to see all the people who are like, I just bought this book and it's ripped one star kind of thing right. know, or like or really mean like completely missing the point I mean sometimes there's really nice things there but I wouldn't know because I never want to look and I wouldn't want to send any of the people who love me there either no it's very upsetting and it's also very upsetting to, to imagine that 
you know, someone who has, is getting sort of factual things wrong about the book, like on a very basic level, is going to influence whether you are able to sell another novel, right? And, 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 it, and it can. And it does. It. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, heard, I've heard publishers say that, like, you know, bad Amazon ratings or bad Goodreads ratings does affect whether or not they decide to buy another book or, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, you, I mean, when we talked about getting your bio right that I read out at the beginning, mm -hmm. like the number of times I've heard someone just, you know, like read the Wikipedia thing and it gets their age wrong or it gets like, excuse everything. Like it does feel like that. Maybe it's the case that basically the Wikipedia and the Amazon and the Goodreads has become more powerful, but not necessarily to, you know, to the, the good, to the good. To, yeah, I know. And I think I always sort of fantasize about carving out, a, you know, really having like a separate space where everybody who's, who, who, who cares about this sort of qualitative aspects of a novel or something, right? Like who, who's not just like, I didn't like being inside this character's head. The plot is boring, right? Like who understands that those aren't legitimate, um, those aren't legitimate compl complaints for certain types of books could just like have a place over here and we can all talk about this, you know, fun, the things we want to talk about. And also it's fine to like read a cheesy thriller that is objectively, you know, not very well done, but very entertaining. Yeah, I mean, it really exposes, I guess, like how much a book is just a product, like in right. that way. And it's and that's what's quite crushing about it. Even if there are so many wonderful, thoughtful people who do go there and leave you nice reviews who've really thought about it, you almost mm -hmm. wish that it wasn't there because it it's like, I remember once someone, the only time I checked my, I think it was my Amazon reviews, someone had, um, was it, I think she got paid to just review as many oh, things yeah. as possible and so she just reviewed like a plastic box before she reviewed my book and I had a look and it yeah. was like this is a nice plastic box and it's see-through <laughs> so you can see what's inside like four stars kind of thing and there was just something so depressing that the next you know like I, I agree another another place where that could happen would be wonderful um hold up what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. But I think I should probably now look at the huge amount of of comments from the people who I hope I haven't offended anyone who's a massive Goodreads commenter. Well, you are valued. Um, I know someone. I know someone who's very like one of the top Goodreads commenters, and I think oh. you can you can game it if you wanted to have a sort of like lrb reader revolt and get a bunch of lrb readers to make their Goodreads accounts and then just support all the books that they like but I don't know if that's a worthy way to spend your um, time. In fact I just saw someone has posted a question that I was going to ask you and I decided not to for the same reason she said I hope this doesn't sound facetious but it was if you if you were going to review your own book what would you say? Oh I mean I think it's really good. <laughs> I I would probably write one of my like long uh multifaceted like a little bit you know um 
a little bit formented essays about the interrelationship among all the different aspects. Uh, I don't know what I would say. I would probably talk about the Harriet the Spy section, I think, because I think that that's that's a good, yeah, that is <laughs> that's a really a good, good section. But I haven't really thought about, I, I should really come up with a, a funny response to this question so that I don't, <laughs> gonna go I don't disappoint up. people when they ask me. I'm going to just get one or two questions that are really, I think, plot spoilery, like about the part of the point question with Felix, because I think that does give away the ending in a way that we might not want to if you haven't read it. Alex McDonald is asking about the self-awareness um, of the narrator and the kind of breaking of the fourth wall, and why was that important? Well, I think that the... Hi, Alex, also. Um, I think the last time I saw Alex was he was walking by the LRB bookstore outside the window. Uh, and <laughs> uh, I think that it... And you is, broke the fourth wall to say hello. Yeah, well, I think if self-awareness is going to be one of your themes, which it is for me, uh, it's important to address it on all levels. And I think, you know, metafiction sort of has this like bad rep for being kind of tacky, but it's very fun, number one. And number two, I think it's very natural. I think we're constantly being sort of meta, we're being ironic, we're being self-aware in our lives. And, and I think that if you try and um, eliminate that from a novel, particularly a realist novel, you're, you're missing out on an element of life that particularly for someone like the narrator and Felix and this sort of milieu, this educated, creative, easy jet set milieu is very real and very potent for us. Um, and also what I, you know, what I tried to do with the fourth wall stuff in the book is not to make a big deal out of it and term it, you know, make a joke about how we're all sitting here, you're reading this book, you understand what the book is, you can Google me if you want to, because that I think is something that authors often resist, even though we're, you know, we're doomed and and our names are on the books and you can Google, you can Google us. Uh, so to me, it, the answer to that problem is, is not to pretend that it's not true. Right, yeah. Um, Tom says, thank you for doing this. I was wondering if either of you had any models for good, accurate, non-cringy, depictions of how people interact on and with the internet when writing your respective books and then he says with a qualifier sorry if just typing this has conjured the shambling fish shaking specter of Franson um <laughs> hello Franson <laughs> um Lauren do you have any um I don't know I was actually wondering what you do because you just put you don't you know you don't seem tormented well, I, by it or as I seem tormented by it I think well, tormented by trying to write non-cringy depictions of yes. the internet um you seem to do it very I, naturally whereas no, my I answer is to be like look at what i'm doing <laughs> no, i think i think with um with my first novel i didn't set out to write at all about the internet but it was like this sense that there was absolutely no way of avoiding it and that it was sort of like keep your enemy close kind of thing because it was like inhibiting me from everything from concentration from you know it felt like the enemy of books in the sense of, you know, like many different ways. So, and the enemy of plot and the enemy of the kind of 19th century model of a character who's sort of like deep and layered. Instead, you get this sort of very like superficial sense of who somebody is. So it was sort of like, again, it, it was like similar to how Lauren, I think, thinks about it. Like it was a challenge. And so you kind of write into that challenge. 
And for me, it was about trying to actually estrange it some, somehow so that it didn't feel, it somehow seems clunky if you're like, and then he got out his, his phone kind of thing. It was like, and then he wrote on his right. phone kind of thing like this. I guess that, that was a while ago now. I got out of it completely with my, with my next novel, pretty much completely um, by having her lose her phone. <laughs> a strategic point in the story um, yeah and he, but yeah it's just, no. he's got little things like his phone dies and stuff yeah. at the beginning and yeah. it's just it's but that's nice because it's there and you understand that it's there but it doesn't matter oh god I just remembered that Lauren is currently reading my book which makes me feel <laughs> terrified no it's um, great it's great um I think so that they were they're a good pair as well do um, you have any more comments on how you do it or should we move on to the next question I don't know. I think I actually disagree with you that it's the enemy of plot. I think that there's a ton of plot that happens. On oh, no, sorry. Media. I meant, I, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I definitely feel that, that it is yeah. not the enemy of plot. What I meant was it was this sense that everyone felt oh, like yeah. it was this destructive thing. And I was like, yeah. no, it's no. hugely dramatic. And, it's you know, very like, it, you know, even especially for the kind of plots which are voice driven and it's about like when someone reveals information to you and so on. I felt like it was, yeah, really dramatic and is exactly the type of book I like to read anyway, even pre-internet. So yes. um, someone is asking if you ever f fall for conspiracy theories, uh, either before doing research about it or even if you know the theory was officially debunked. Um, to out, I your, think out yourself. I think that the compelling thing about conspiracy theories is that there's always some percentage of, of them that like might be true or indeed connect to something that is, is, you know, verifiably true. I'm trying to think of one that's more interesting because so many of them are, are off the deep end. But I think the, the, the example, the sort of really dark example, which does not show up in my book. Um, and, and I sort of, make a joke about it because she's trying to determine how bad of a person Felix is and she's going through his conspiracy theories and she's like well he doesn't have any conspiracy theories to do with children so that means he's like very aware of what he's doing and he has a limit to how much harm he's going to cause and start sort of interplay between the internet and the, and the real world quote unquote but I mean that, that to talk about Jeffrey Epstein that story is is very similar to the most horrible conspiracy theories that that drive the QAnon people totally yeah. mad. So do I believe them? No, but I think, and I think that's it's very sad that on all levels of the of of our media, whether it's just Twitter or the New York Times, to be able to interpret them requires quite a lot of savvy that I would not expect someone who doesn't work in the media as I have to, you know, to possess, right? And I think there's this very understandable suspicion of all sorts of media, right? Like, and I think, and I think there's an invitation to be a critic, to be a media critic in, in all parts of the internet, particularly. And I think that the rewards that you get for doing that are very compelling and so I can totally understand why someone would lean conspiratorially yeah and I guess once you're there once you're in that world you know the more it means that you're cut off from friends and family and the more that you basically define your identity through that group it's like a community and it's very hard to step away from so it's like that kind of sunk cost thing where you're just like yeah 
which I think has a lot actually to, to in this book there's a lot about kind of that sunk cost thing of like well you've got this far so to accept that it was like a waste of time and you were wrong is like devastating yeah, so and you go deeper into it deeply embarrassing and people do not want to be embarrassed they don't you know they will do anything to save face even if their solution to the problem is to be more embarrassing but but you see this yeah. sort of the conspiracy you know if you talk to someone who believes in conspiracy theories and you try to talk to you know you try to explain it to them they just say no you're a part of the delusion i'm the only person who understands and and yeah i think there are a lot of stories in in the world right now that have this very convenient Ah, yes, but that's part of the point to go back to the spoiling and the end of the book, you know, this, ah, yes, but I've thought of that. And actually that fits perfectly with this sort of recursive, horrible, perverse meta fiction that I've right. constructed in my head. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of you, when you talked about Instagram being a kind of even more like hermetic version of that, like that is basically what the conspiracy theory is. It makes everything very small and manageable. And like, there's basically like, there's basically one or two conspiracy theories that answer everything. And if you get into one, you kind of get into all the others and it like makes everything like living in a village again, you know, in a way, right. like it kind of right. just, yeah. And it is, it kind of ends up, I think, making everything very solipsistic because it all goes back to the same thing. I, I yeah. don't, I don't believe in them, but this is, I agree. No, um, yeah. And then there's lots of, lots of questions sort of to the same effect, maybe as, as some of those ones, but what about, um, did do you learn to speak German while in Berlin? If yes, how did acquiring a language while writing a novel affect your writing? If no, was it because you were too focused on writing in English or was it not really a conscious choice? Okay, this is a great question. I learned German. I, my German is the weirdest level of German. I've never met anyone who speaks the level of German that I speak, which is like competent, strong medium German. So I can like understand quite a lot of things. I'm very, uh, you know, self-conscious about speaking. Um, and I continue to take the same high intermediate level class like once a year. I'm currently in two German classes. So, so I'm maintaining a connection to German without being very good at it. Um, when I lived there, I lived there from 2012 to 2014. I just finished university and nobody that I knew was really speaking German um, in a serious way. And there is a, a little moment in the book where the protagonist's uh, German roommate, she, she says, the protagonist says, well, I guess if I'm gonna stay here, I should learn German. And the German roommate says, why? English is better. And I think that it's quite hard to learn German in Berlin. But I didn't write this when I was in Berlin. I wrote this like three years after I left. So that, from that, that standpoint... rang very true for me in terms of all. I had so many friends from school who at some point went to live in Berlin because of obviously the cheap rents and, um, you know, actively tried to learn German and were just rebuffed at every turn by yes. these perfect English speakers. But you know, I also remember, remember um, a lot of them ended up working for this like telemarketing, like telephone sales company. Oh, yeah. I think it was mainly like, I think a company that did period pads and old people's underwear yes. absorbent yeah. stuff. And, um, and I remember this person who just told me that's what they were doing to make money was like, the thing is though, is, is that in Berlin, you can just be and I remember mm -hmm. being like, well, what is that? What is just no. being? And then, and then obviously now I've, uh, you know, 
that was a while back when I was like 20 or something. And, and now I kind of understand what that means. And especially from this book that lots of people are yeah. just there being. They're just there. They don't, you know, there are people who can't even order a beer and it's the same word in English. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wanted to make fun of that also, but the idea of, of like moving to another country where you don't have any of the responsibilities of the sort of normal uh, travel or normal tourist is very compelling. And that's why I think so many people go there, but it's not yeah. true. I mean, you can't go to a movie, you know, you have to like find a special movie to go to. That's not fun. There are tons of wonderful lectures there that you can participate in and, and they have a really great, literary culture and arts culture that you have to sort of ask for allowances for that yeah. I don't like. Last question, York Underwood, are you already working on your next novel? Do you enjoy the process of novel writing versus criticism? Um, do, do I enjoy it better than criticism? I enjoy it very much. I find it very sort of um, fun and I feel less sort of self-limitation when I'm writing a novel just because when you're writing for magazines I'm like this is my magazine now you know uh, <laughs> like nobody has to edit it uh, and that has upsides and downsides but um I have some things working but I'm not going to be like I'm working on another novel because that's I just asking for trouble <laughs> <laughs> which I think might be yeah a good point to end um thank you so much for coming or being wherever you are and thank you so much Lauren for giving us your time and congratulations on your debut novel and I'm sure everyone is going to rush now to buy it. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.